Hey, do you got fries with that shake? <laughs> oh, speaking of fries, which way is catering? With Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. Find out how you can take advantage of their expertise in consulting, talent buying, production, and marketing services for your next event at VarietyAttractions.com. On today's show, we're excited about this guest. So excited. I am so excited that, you know what, I think I'm into something good. <laughs> and Mrs. Brown has a lovely daughter. It's just going to be great. We, we've had some conversations with him uh, outside of our podcast so it's going to be nice to kind of talk about new things, talk about old things. He has lots of good stories of being on the road over the years, the many decades of his success. So without delay, let's get to part one with Peter Noon. As we talk about the Beatles. The Rolling Stones. Elvis. The Who. The Who? Mm-hmm. Well, let's get right to it. Let's go. Peter's in the waiting oh, room. He's early. How he prompt. Are you, are you ready? Yeah, how's my hair? Your hair looks great. Is, is mine flowing? It is. I'm nervous. I think I'm sweating. Okay, you can get in. Are you in? Mm-hmm. Okay. That didn't sound right either. No, I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm good. Okay. Which way is catering with Justine and Bruce? And on today's episode, we have a very good friend of ours and hopefully a good friend of yours as well. It's Peter Noon. How you doing, bro? Look at look at you two, so fit and healthy, despite what's going on in the world. This is great. Nice to see you both again. It's it's awesome to see you, Peter, and um, we've been really looking forward to talking to you because we've uh, spent some time with you outside of our podcast and talked about different stories and things like that. But we want to kind of share some of those stories with everybody else as well. So, first off, I want to ask you. Um, back in the late 1900s, when you guys first started as the Hermits, what did that hospitality rider look like uh, when you guys first started? <laughs> there was no hospitality rider. We had the name of the person who gave us the four pounds. And we would, get, first of all, we had to load all our own gear in. So there was nobody asking where's the catering and um, we carried we carried our stuff down the stairs of all those places they got so much so much great uh, glamour in the history but there really wasn't that much glamour about matthew street in the rain carrying the pa down the stairs <laughs> and putting it on a chair on the side of the stage and and at the time the catering was there was this girl called Scylla black who was um who had coffee which was a it was called camp coffee and that was in a, a mug that wasn't really well cleaned <laughs> you know as it had been rinsed under a tap of cold yeah. water <laughs> and she served a mug of hot water with a teaspoon of a thing called camp coffee and the sugar was in like a gigantic thing next to it and you could take us I was a sugar freak even then you know like all English people you could take like a tablespoon of sugar and put it into this unbelievable camp liquid coffee mix. And, and the other thing she had was bovril, which was, um, or oxo, which was a, like a, a beef stock in a cube, a little cube about that big. And she would put that in the hot water and stir it up. And that was the catering. You tea, coffee, 
uh, or uh, Bovril, Oxel, and and everybody went. You know, the, we hoped to make enough money to be able to eat, and sometimes we would stop at a fish and chip shop on the way back. And we would just buy the chips because we didn't have enough money for the fish. And we just <laughs> got by five bags of chips. Oh, my. And then when we got a little bit richer, we, be, we got the Peter Noon diet, which was the batter of the fish. <laughs> and, you know, to this day, I never eat when I order fish and chips. I don't eat the fish. I only eat the batter that it's in. I can't I don't like fish, but I love that stuff around the outside. So there really wasn't there really wasn't any need for 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 the place to provide us with with anything, you know, like you always put on these spreads. I mean, I come off stage and there's like 90 cream puffs there waiting to. And I love that. So so there was really not all we wanted to do was like. Win, do good in the concert, you know, and we would we played all the same places over and over again because we were good. And, and if you were good, you would get invited back. And you usually got invited back within an hour of you finishing the concert. So, you know, it was my job to stay and get the money. I was the youngest, but I was most the most likely to be able to count the money properly and share it evenly. So um, so I, I would wait behind and, and I had a little book and I'd say, uh, hey, Bob, like Bob Waller ran, ran the cabin and I'd say, hey, Bob, can we have another booking? Because he, he didn't say booking. He called it booking. We're, we're booking all these groups to play in here, you know. The, so I said, yeah, can we get a bit more money? And he goes, he said, well, how much do you think you're worth? Which is the worst thing to say to a musician, because all musicians think they're worth nothing. And they're just lucky to be getting paid. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, we'd like a raise from, from last time. And he goes, well, that would put you in the same league as the Beatles. <laughs> okay that would be the same 30 pounds is what we paid the beatles we can't pay you that much money and i would say oh yeah 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 okay well what have you got and he'd say, say well we'll give you 22 pounds <laughs> so did you <laughs> that so, was the raise so speaking of the beatles did your paths cross during that time at all often many many times i mean it's when i think about it you know all the times i met the beatles like i met john lennon you know, I, re I met them hundreds of times, so you can't specifically name them, but one, you know, I can't bring them all out, but I've met them loads of times. And then one time I, I, I was kind of already famous. You know, I'd had a record in the charts and everything. And I go to a place called the, the Ad Lib Club in London. And it's in, it was behind Leicester Square. For people who know London, it was behind Leicester Square. And it was in a little street and you got in a lift to go to this really posh, kind of playboy-esque kind of club. It wasn't really a rock and roll club, even though they had fantastic music. Because at the time, there was this crossover before all, between all the rich lords and ladies who went out night clubbing. Could I get a glass of champagne? And all these yobbo English musicians who'd suddenly become popular and were being allowed into these nightclubs because even rich girls liked pop stars. So... And we were more fun than those boring lords and <laughs> businessmen. So I get in the lift. As I'm going in the lift, I see the stupidest. If you want to be in, inconspicuous, you do not want a psychedelic painted Rolls Royce. But up pulls, pulls this psychedelic Rolls Royce. And I immediately go, oh, it's John Lennon. And out of the car gets Terry Doran, who was John's driver. 
and he was like a hard man you know he could like knock people out with his face you know what I mean <laughs> so 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 and I and I said hello hello John hello Terry and he's one of those guys so I get in the lift with them and I, I don't really know what I, I don't know how to break that ice of going you know I don't want to say I love your new record or anything like that so I just say nothing and I'm just standing there and when we get in they get shown to a booth and I'm left there like a lump <laughs> because because they the place that we've gone into they know me they know I'm famous, um, but I'm with John Lennon, so I must be really important. Sure. So they take me to his booth and, sit, and he says, the last one to sit down is an egg, which I don't know what it, what that means, but I don't want to be an egg. So <laughs> I sat down on the edge of this booth, right? And the girl, the cocktail waitress comes up. You know, his cocktail waitress, like Playboy Bunny kind of girls, you know, with everything pushed up to the sure. face and everything. Uh, and I looked there and I'm 16 or 17. And it's clear that I'm not 21. I think nightclubs was 21 or 18, but I'm, I looked about 11 when I was 16. <laughs> so 17. So I, I'm there, but I'm a pop star, which may, makes people uh, more acceptable. And uh, she said, she doesn't want to say, show me your ID, because that didn't happen. They used to say, are you 18? So she didn't ask me that question because I'm with John Lennon. So, you know, all the be all things are off. And she's to get rid of me, she says, there's a two drink minimum. And John says, oh, Grace, I'll have two Bacardis and he'll have two Cokes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and the drinks came, and he gave me this little mini miniature bottle of you know, like they used to have on the airplanes, those little mini bottles. He gives me a Bacardi, and I give him a Coke, and that's it. We like now old friends over a drink, you know what I mean? So I sat there for the evening, and, and I used to see them loads of times. And he always called me Hermit, he never called me Peter or Herman. Hey, Hermit, Hermit. next time I see him, we, we're doing the we did this unbelievable concert. Um, we used to do the Wembley Pool every year, Wembley, which was the biggest gig, and it was the NME Pole Winners concert. And every year, Herman Summits were voted into this top 10 groups. So it would be the Beatles, the Stones, and it was Oz, and the Yardbirds, and the Kinks, and Cliff Richards, and the Shadows, and it was all these people on the same bill. So I'm not gonna say, compared to the Beatles and the Stones, the Hermits were pretty dull. So whenever we got to a gig, I would always go and hang out with <laughs> the other guys in other bands. I would not be in the dressing room with the Hermits. I'd be in the dressing room with the Stones, like hanging out with Brian Jones. Or, or So this time I'm hanging out with John Lennon. And we're standing in this tunnel that, you know, like if it was a football game, you run up this tunnel onto the pitch. Mm -hmm. but it, and it's Wembley Pool. And I'm standing in this tunnel. I'm chatting away, you know, yeah, and we just came back from America and we, we rented the same house as you. You know, we got that carry because we rented the same house as the Beatles in Hollywood. You know, it was Cary Grant had this house and yeah, we rented the same club. And he got, and he looks at me and he goes, hey, Hermit, isn't this one of your songs? And the Hermits are on stage and they're playing the intro introduction. To <laughs> and it's great because it's a video of me coming out of this tunnel like, like a, like a basket, like a, more like a basketball player because I'm running. You know how slow those baseball players run. Yeah. So it's like I'm running and you see me and I get to the stage and they go down, 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 down
and the disc jockey Pete Murray says to the to the hermits who are kind of bewildered because they don't know where I am. I haven't been in the dressing room for hours, uh, and the disc jockey says, "Where is he? Where is he?" And you come and you come <laughs> running out. Join and I come in, Bruce, like this. Jesus, <laughs> you can see that for the rest of the song, it's like a famous video now. You can see for the rest of the song, I'm never really that. I'm never in a thing called the comfort zone because I'm still recovering from like running up this thing and being out of breath. And the, and the hermits are going nuts because I've kind of let them down. You know, they're yeah. in that way that you, you know, you hurt people's feelings by letting them down. And you're running up the you're running up the tunnel like a footballer. Yeah, no, Don't like, start without like me. yeah, really, they shouldn't. Have, they, sh but what was weird is they should not have begun the song until they saw me, until they, until I was there, you know. But what can you do? They were nervous too. Everybody was nervous. Remember in those days, even you know, I used to see the Beatles like they used to do this, this amazing warm up thing in in the dressing room where they'd all go, oh, and we got, it was like a, a Welsh rugby chant. And it, it took me 40 years to realize, oh, they were warming up their voices and getting oxygen in their bodies. Someone had told them before, probably Tony Sheridan or someone at the beginning of their business, somebody who was an old timer had said, well, you're not going to go on stage without warming up. That's why the Beatles were, oh, do you ever see the Beatles like go on stage? They ran faster than me mm -hmm. to get on stage. That thing at Shea Stadium, you see them, they, they, they got, they got and now the Beatles. And they run across, they run across that that field, Shea Stadium field. They get much faster than any baseball player has ever, ever run. And they get on stage and they, there's no five roadies with black T-shirts and black socks fiddling with the equipment. They plug in and go, one, two, three, four. It's brilliant. Well, because, because nobody could hear them. I mean, everybody's screaming. They didn't know that, though. They didn't know that. They didn't know. Remember, we didn't know that we that people couldn't hear us because we just we could only see there were no monitors. You see, all this it's like I often say to people, they go, What about the monitors? I say, Well, you know, I'm not really worried about that because my career was over before monitors were invented. <laughs> you know, th there didn't used to be monitors. And if you see the Beatles, they didn't have any monitors, they didn't have any in-ear, and you know, you hear about Paul McCartney going out on the road and and realizing afterwards that you should have only had one and all that stuff. That, was, that wasn't a problem. We all heard ourselves and each other enough to be able to make it work. And that was real rock and roll. If you see Jerry Lee Lewis uh, or Little Richard playing the piano, they had no monitors. They couldn't hear anybody, anybody else in the band. They played for themselves. And, and the whole beauty of being in a band is that the cumulative effort of all those people, like, like the Royal Marines, you, it becomes one thing. So did you just assume the role as the leader of the Hermits or how did that all develop? It's, it's a good question because nobody ever really knows what, how it develops. But because I was the youngest person in the band, given the most responsibility as the lead singer, you become the spokesman for other people. Mm -hmm. They ask me a question and I answer it in the we form, mm -hmm. like the king. And, it, and on television, the cameraman stays on the lead singer while he's singing the lead and goes on the guitar player during the guitar solo. And the other people are just like, 
it's just the way it is. Nobody designed it. It was before MTV. So what happens is the the lead singer, Jagger, becomes the leader and the spokesman. And with that, in my case, what happened was Mickey Most, who was the record producer, and I were more than friends. You know, we were, we had this, like the first time, it's hard to explain what, how, how this unique thing. So the first time I met him, I went to his house. He was living at his father-in-law's house in Wembley, near, near Wembley, where I met, went with the Beatles. And um, it was a little house and, and we, we're talking about the songs that we like. And he gets out a guitar and him and his wife, his wife is called Chris, Christine. And they sang together, Devoted for You. Devoted to You, the Everly Brothers. So, I'll mm-hmm. never hurt you. I'll never lie. I'll never be untrue. I'll never give you reason to lie. And you know, for me, I'd always thought that music had to be, had to have more than, more than depth. They sang that song and they meant it. They meant that they were devoted to each other. They didn't play the song to impress me. They played the song to each other. And I found out later that they'd been in South Africa for a long time as a double act, you know, Mick and Chrissy, and they would play and they would do those songs. But when he got that guitar and looked at it and sang it, I go, this is, this guy knows, he knows more. It's like Stanislavski. Yes, I don't know if that means anything to you, but Stanislavski, the method acting and all that stuff is this, this chap Stanislavski and I go well here you go he's got into this song and he knows it and I would say Mickey how do you get you know that that reverb on um walk right back you know uh, how'd you get that sound he go oh yeah he knew he knew the records Mm -hmm. he knew all the records that I knew so we instantly it was simple there was never anything and, and he became my best friend and he was the best man at my wedding and he's my daughter's godfather and we became this thing that didn't mean that we ganged up on the other people what happened was that i'm now the lead singer and i'm getting all the press to, to the point where Herman's hermit signed a record dealer in america for a million dollars advance and we don't get all the million dollars that week. It's just the paper. We're going to be paid over the next 30 years. They're going to give us a million dollars. The newspaper says, Herman, the luckiest millionaire, right? Now mm-hmm. I've got the million dollars. And yeah. my mom and dad believe it. They <laughs> <laughs> want to help me spend it. Yeah. But it didn't, didn't look good because probably Carl Green's mom would say, where's your share? Well, he, well, mom, it's not really, he didn't really get a mom and dad. He didn't really get a million dollars. He got, he got a, a deal and we're all, we all get equal shares of it. But you know, that's, so what happens is now I didn't live with my mom and dad. What happened, the beginning of the band is sort of responsible for the way we behaved. So when Herman Summits made it, uh, my parents had moved to Liverpool, but the band was in Manchester. My parents moved to Liverpool. They were originally from there anyway, and they moved back there. My sister lived there. Everybody lived there. So I moved in with my grandmother because that was easier for the band because we were working five nights a week anyway. We were really popular. 
not for big money, but we made, you know, we had a fan following, which is how you get a record deal then. So I lived with my grandmother, but the minute it was, a, it was a great place. I don't know if you've ever lived with your grandmother, but if you did, she is completely deaf <laughs> and goes to bed at nine o'clock. So you can sneak girls in at any time of the night. You can play. You can have a drummer in the living room playing as yeah. loud as he can go. You could have John Bonham playing drums in the in the kitchen and show. So it was like it was this perfect situation. But then what happened? We made it, and I need all the TV shows, all the radio, the BBC. In those days, probably still the same now. Everything was in London. Like everything in France is in Paris. Everything was in London. All the newspapers were there, all the TV, all the radio, all the radio station was in London. So I went to London. I got a little flat. It was in the same little place. George Harrison lived down the street. It was all nice kind of, it's this little flat and it's above a garage. And now I'm in London. And one morning, Mickey, I have a phone, you know, the, the old rotary phone and mornings, didn't really exist for me, you know, because if you don't have a plan, you don't get up in the morning. So it's morning and the phone rings and he goes, Pete, yeah, yeah, what's up? Uh, Sam Cook's been killed. Oh, no. He said, we're going to do a tribute. Get over here as quickly as possible. Eric's, Eric Burden, we, me and Eric were both um, sort of, Eric Burden and the animals and Herman Summits were sort of in the same package so eric's over and he's done bring it on home to me so I, I'm, I'm on the way over there and i said taxi rides 10 minutes kingsway studio everything was in kingsway studio and eric's already got bring it on home to me now we're up to the bit where big Chaz chandler is going yeah Ooh, it's horrible <laughs> so, nothing like lou rules you know what i mean it's yeah. awful and i'm going Ooh. and i said hey mickey what, what, what shall i do can i do cupid he goes, Cupid, what do you mean Cupid? You know, because I can make that noise, you know, like, I can make that noise with my mouth. We don't need to get any, you know, this is kind of nonsense. I can make the noise with my mouth. He says, you're not doing, we're not doing that. He said, listen to this. Don't know much about history. Who does that sound like? Hmm. Don't know much about biology. Who's that sounding like? Get in there and you're doing wonderful work. <laughs> Because it's your song, because yeah. you don't know anything about history. You know? Oh, okay. So I go, oh, okay. And I go in there, and, I, and there's Jimmy Page. It isn't Lek and it isn't Barry. It's Jimmy Page who's just done another session. And Mickey said, hey, help us out with this. So, and Jimmy says, let's cut, let's, you know, he's a nice, quiet guy. Let's cut the beginning in half because it's boring. He goes, down, 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 Let's cut it in half. Okay, so we cut it in half and we go, don't know much about him, right? That's the way it goes. But the drummer doesn't know that we've cut it in half. Because we've just, me and Mickey and Mickey and Jimmy Page. So if you listen to the record, it's a great sounding record, but the drummer only catches up when it gets to a different part of the song. Now, who's Now I know. They catches up with us, thinking that we're going to do another take. But Mickey goes, that's it. That's a great take. I said, well, let's do another one just in case. No, next. <laughs> he wanted that take, even though there were all the mistakes on it. It just had that sort of lovely, lively thing of me actually learning the song. Mm -hmm. You know, I had the words written down on a piece of paper. 
So sneaking girls into your grandmother's house and when you were so young and going to those clubs and hanging out backstage and in dressing rooms, how did you stay out of trouble? How were you always um, the good guy? Well, well, I, I, at my grandmother's house, when I did bring girls back there, it was only to show them my stamp collection. I had a really big... <laughs> oh, car. right, right. You had an upside-down airplane or... But but seriously <laughs> yeah. though, how did you how did you stay out of trouble? Because I'm sure there was so many opportunities for things to go awry and to go sideways and go down the wrong path. How did you stay true and stay the good guy? Some things never get said, but the guys in Herman's Hermits are really nice guys. There are no bad people in it. We got rid of all the bad people in the van. You know, anyone who had gas or anybody who drank or anybody <laughs> who was, you know, drank too much. They were gone along the way to, to making it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can say absolutely, I'm 100% confident that not one of us ever did anything illegal or illicit we just didn't do it you know we were not those kind of people you know Leck was his dad was a policeman a, a you know a constable just a, on a bike a really nice guy everybody came from this sort of English working class world where we only heard about people doing bad stuff you know and all that sex and drugs and rock and roll we were we were doing it for fun we, if that wasn't to, to be fun that was something that we you know everybody was on a different we were all in the same program which was just to be successful at some anything so that we didn't have to you know everybody's dad was was a was a working class person my dad was an accountant and my mother was an accountant and they were so far ahead of everybody else in home and sermons that the people thought they were rich the other hermits thought my parents were rich because they had a mortgage and things like that that nobody none of the other guys had that so we were all just working class boys and and the idea that we could get on the radio was was the original stim impetus of you know maybe if we do this right we can get a song on the radio and when think about it if you get on the radio you're in the same place the same room as Roy Orbison and Gene Pitney and Jerry Lee Lewis you walk into that room with them and people hear you in their car whoa and that was all it was and then when you get a hit record and the same for all of us we were not interested in you know i think when you look at the tapes of Herman summits we played against first of all we chose a name that girls wouldn't scream <laughs> was it, uh, don't really call it. seriously we did it yeah. was it was a conscious thing that it would be again because you know we were a boy band before boy bands we were all boys Young mm -hmm. boys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you didn't want to be this pullover that you gave to me. We chose to be, you know, romantic and the same as the, we were. The, we thought the same as the audience. And to tell you the truth, I think I was the audience. I was my audience as I am. You know, Bruce, I've never done a concert where I haven't seen been and watched every other act on the bill since mm -hmm. I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to see Sam Cooke in a field in a place and I saw the Beatles in a field. And, and whenever I do a concert, even today, I always go and see the other band when they're on. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. Always. Because, you know, I, I, I recommend it to anybody who's in a band or anybody who wants to be in the music business. Go and watch all the other. You may learn nothing what to do, but you learn lots of stuff not to do. 
by watching other bands. Oh, they were so rude to their audience. And, uh, you know, I saw a band once, they were huge. And, and somebody, some girl came up and gave the lead singer a bouquet of flowers. And he threw them behind. He took, he just took the flower yeah, and threw them behind. Nobody knows what you're going to do with the flowers anyway. You're not going to suddenly become Liza Minnelli and go, oh, no, 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 But you do not throw them away. Whatever you do, you got to go and put them on an amplifier and say, oh, I'll be able to take those on the plane. There's only two dozen roses with yeah. thorns. Yeah. But you don't throw them away. So, you know, over the years, I've seen all kinds of stuff and I've seen all the great people do things that you go, oh, I wish I was smart enough to stick. Can't, doesn't fit with any of my songs. I can't kick the piano stool over because I don't have a piano. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, to go off your point of watching the other acts that day before you perform, were there any times that you had a support act playing before you that you watched them and you're like, uh-oh, I got to follow them? No, this, this, the follow thing is not, is not a thing, you know, because it, I, I tell you once, incredibly, I was on a tour in England and Billy J. Kramer was on the bill. And just the choices of his songs for that audience were better choices than I had. So I was like, oh my God, my song's not going to work now because he just did, the sun ain't going to shine anymore. The sun ain't going to shine anymore. And it was like a showstopper. That's the only time. And I would... You know, we took the Who on a tour because we, Herman Summits, we, we, we were good guys. We, it's, so, it sounds ridiculous. And we wanted, there was this sort of British camaraderie. I, I don't know how to explain it. There was this sort of, we were all like a bunch of plumbers on a, on a world tour. <laughs> and we wanted to make sure the other plumbers got every now and then. Right. So, yes. so what would happen is like Herman Soma, it's like in, in the history of Herman Soma, the first tour we, we bought Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders. He was our friend. He lived in Manchester. He was a good guy. And I thought he was a better singer than anybody else. I mean, him and Alan Clark from the Hollies were the two best singers. So we brought them on an American tour and they, they had a hit and it was it worked out good for him. Then we bought the animals because we were in the same house as the animals. We lived together. You know, we were we drank and lived together. And um, and they were good guys. The animals are good guys. And Eric used to be my neighbor until recently, but uh, he's gone to Greece. And and then we brought the animals and it was a big success for them. And they broke it and, and then they broke up. But um, then and then we bought the Hollies because they were our friends from Manchester. See, see the link here that they're all our friends mm -hmm. that we're we bringing yeah. them so they, they can play. Because you could say to the label, you know, because it was hard for British bands to break in America. A lot of Good ones didn't. All those did because they could say to the label, we're going to play to 500,000 people this summer because Herman Summits would do, we were only allowed to do 50 concerts a year in America. So this was just one of our markets. It happened to be my favorite one because I thought the home of music in my head was always America. So, so we would, and then we brought the Who on. And, and at the time, the Who were like a top 40 act. People don't realize that during the tour, they realized that they weren't going to be that good at the top 40 because Herman Sermit's come on after us and they've got 11 hits. We're right. doing pictures mm -hmm. of Lily and Happy Jack and Substitute and no one knows Substitute. So, we so they became more and more heavy during that tour. 
So we helped them break it. At the end of the tour, they went and did that major outdoor show. And, you know, and during that tour, we never saw Pete Townsend. He didn't show up for any of the birthday parties or the, the melee because he was always in his room writing Tommy. Mm. And, and Roger was always in his room staying fit and eating cucumber sandwiches and drinking <laughs> bottles of water. So it was me, Keith Moon, and Carl Green, and John Entwistle, who took on the world. We took on the world. We thought we could never die. We could, every day we'd show up at this Holiday Inn and we'd say, there's only four stories and we would jump off the roof into the swimming pool because there was only four stories. It's crazy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The two stories were beneath contempt. We're not even going to try that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll jump off the two-story buildings backwards. So, you know, that was it. I never really... You know, I played with unbelievable people. I mean, once I went on before the Stones, but we'd asked them, they'd wanted to close the show and we knew that there was a curfew. So we let them close the show and they accused us of going long when I had a fit because I go second verse, same as the first verse. (laughs) First verse, it's over. That was the song. (laughs) Yeah. That was awesome. So awesome. Every time he starts talking about John Lennon and the Beatles, I just kind of get all cuddly. Could you imagine (laughs) sitting at that table with Peter and John drinking Bacardi? It'd be like cloud nine. I know. First, I'd be in a deer in the headlights. Right. Second of all, even if I tried to pick up my drink, it would just be shaking. I (laughs) probably couldn't even drink. And then they'd ask you a question and you'd go, uh, uh, uh. But if you want to hear more with Peter, make sure to listen to part two with Peter Noon on Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. Find out how you can take advantage of their expertise in consulting, talent buying, production, and marketing services for your next event at VarietyAttractions.com. Beauty.